Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen, and it is Tuesday, April 4th. Joining me via Skype is Asit Sharma. Great to have you with us, Asit. Thanks uh, for having me. Great to be back. Joining me via Skype is Asit Sharma. Great to have you with us, Asit. Thanks uh, for having me. Great to be back. So, Fools, we have a two-part show for you this fine day. Uh, We will be looking at some quotes from the management teams at Target and Dr. Pepper Snapple. Kind of a sniff test for investors and shareholders. But before we get to that, uh, Asit, I really wanted to cover some of the news that broke yesterday. So, Bloomberg broke this story right around lunchtime, uh, the idea that Panera Bread may soon be a buyout candidate. And if you look at the intraday trading from Monday, you can see the stock soar immediately following their report, or the Bloomberg report, that is. So shares ultimately gained 8% on the day and reached a new all time closing high of about $283. And as it turns out, that comes on top of the all time high hit last Friday, so just a few days ago, by which point the shares were already up 28% for the first quarter of 2017. Can you give us a lay of that land here and who some of the potential suitors may be that uh, might pursue Panera Bread? Sure. So basically, Panera Bread is uh, more of a slow growth company uh, in the recent past, but it's a very predictable cash cow. Uh, it's a bakery restaurant concept, as most of our listeners know, and has been overshadowed in recent years by the success of Chipotle, which has had its own stumbles. Uh, and has almost been seen as an also-ran, yet it's a very intriguing business. Uh, Panera Bread, um, last year they did about uh, $2 billion uh, odd in sales. They have operating cash flow predictably between three and $400 million each year. So the question is, who would want to buy this company? Now, Bloomberg reports that there's a putative deal value of 7 to $8 billion, and that narrows the realm of suitors. Uh, the most likely one is JAB Holdings, which is a conglomerate in consumer goods. It's based in Luxembourg, and they're well known for some recent acquisitions, including uh, Pete's Coffee, uh, the Dewey Egberts brand, which is partly the old um, Mondelez coffee portfolio, mm-hmm. and DE Master Blenders, if uh, any of our listeners remember those names. And uh, they've also acquired the Keurig Green Mountain business. And for those of you who are coffee aficionados, they bought Stumptown, a high-end roaster, and Intelligentsia Coffee. So um, JAB Holdings is probably the most likely suitor, but Duncan Brands has also been mentioned uh, as a having possible interest in uh, this company. I think Duncan Brands is not quite as likely, but we'll get to that uh, in a moment. But that's this is the basic uh, story that cropped up yesterday. And maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, why a holding company like JAB would be interested in Panera Bread. I'll flip it back to you for your thoughts, Vince, and then I have a couple of thoughts as well on why JAB might find this company attractive. Sure thing. Thank you, Asit. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, in addition to the names that you mentioned, and because at this point, uh, you know, obviously we, there are no official comments from any of these companies yet. Um, some of the other names that have been floated out there, at least, if you read some of the coverage on there, uh, out there for this story, uh, Starbucks has been mentioned, even Domino's Pizza has been mentioned, which I thought was interesting, uh, McDonald's and Yum! Brands as well. So, you know, overall here, uh, 
as Asit mentioned in terms of you know the business here, Panera, 2,000 locations across the U.S. and Canada, about 45% of them being company operated, and you know obviously uh, the the way their their segments for their business break down, you know they have their company operated stores, um, and then the 55% of them being franchise operations, so they collect the royalties and fees there, and then they also have a small part of piece of their business being kind of like uh, fresh dough and other product sales to those franchisees that they supply. And so the company owned stores, not surprisingly, make up the largest share of revenue at about 87%. And in terms of the, the, the performance that the company has seen and outlook, um, I think for shareholders of Panera and for the potential suitors, as you view this deal, um, you know the fact is revenue growth has slowed pretty significantly from high teen percentage levels just a few years ago to about mid single digit levels the past three years. And uh, I think something that's been of uh, pretty significant concern is the fact that while the top line has uh, has continued to grow at those mid single digit levels, uh, net income has declined each of the past three years, and uh, they've been really. Uh, Going through share buybacks, uh, reducing their shares outstanding, uh, almost 30% since 2012 to kind of juice their earnings per share growth. Um, but the way I see it is, you know, ultimately you have a company here that's still outperforming in an industry where you know chain restaurants have been struggling quite a bit. I guess when it comes down to it, you know, 6.42 billion dollar market cap. Um, you mentioned a potential deal size around seven to eight billion dollars. You know, right now where Panera trades, price to sales of. 2.3 times uh, forward price to earnings of 36.7 times. You know where the stock's trading now is definitely not going to be exactly a bargain deal for whoever ends up picking it up. Correct. And one of the interesting things about Panera is that depending on what kind of buyer you are, uh, it changes its complexion as an acquisition target. And what I mean by that. Is um, well, let's go back and, and look at a basic concept in acquisition finance the strategic buyer versus the financial buyer. Mm -hmm. Narrow bread is a great target for a financial buyer, maybe not so great a target for a strategic buyer. A strategic buyer wants to combine its own assets for a strategic reason with a target and then blow up both of the businesses combined. So there's a strategic re reason to take hold and increase revenues uh, because of some strength that the target has. Financial buyer is actually looking for a company which is more predictable, where it can make a few tweaks, uh, or perhaps even something more than a tweak, uh, increase that EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, uh, and reap those rewards year after year after year. So JAB Holdings is basically a financial buyer if you look at the companies that Vince and I mentioned, they are all uh, very strong, stable businesses. Uh, many of them are leaders in their niche. And JAB Holdings hasn't come in and drastically changed those businesses. It's got an enormous balance sheet, so this is a company it can acquire and uh, then just add to that stable of cash cow businesses. If I can mix a metaphor between the stable and the cash cow. If you look at companies like McDonald's, uh, which has been mentioned, even Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, none of these is a true strategic fit with Panera Bread. Panera is a different kind of company. It's fast casual, part restaurant, part bakery. It has a little bit of the coffee focus, as Vince mentioned, uh, but it's a hard company to 
uh, grow at a fast rate. It just has reached a stage of maturity where that will prove more difficult to whoever operates it. So if your objective is to get a nice return, uh, then you're probably looking at JAB as a potential buyer. Now, I could be totally wrong, but uh, that's why we like to, to play the game. Uh, my money is on JAB Holdings, uh, and I, I think this will, if this deal goes through it, it will be very good for this privately held business. Sure, and, and that's a really good description there uh, of the two kind of different buyers that might be going to this. Last thing I want to touch on before we move on, uh, something that I think uh, speaks to the outlook for the company, you know, being more stable with those 2,000 plus locations at this point uh, through the U.S. and Canada. Uh, something that's really interesting, I think, that the company's done very well is with their digital penetration, which is about 25% in the company and stores, and also the loyalty program, which we've talked about on the show before. 25 million members. I think they account for these members account for something like half of transactions that the restaurant sees. And something else that you know might be a bit of a growth driver for the company going forward is their delivery footprint, footprint uh, which is now available at 15% of locations. And uh, you know we've seen with companies like Domino's, for example, mentioned as a suitor, but how powerful that can be as part of their business. And uh, you know the Panera 2.0 initiatives that were rolled out recently, you know basically uh, a lot of operating and uh, technological uh, enhancements to some of these stores. Though and uh, Efficiencies there, uh, in something that you know I noticed in the Panera Bread just across the street, a lot of uh, kiosk or tablet ordering, uh, those have been rolled out to about seventy percent of their company-owned restaurants, and these ongoing strategic investments, I think. Uh, have contributed a bit to the weaker operating margins for the company, and then you have rising labor costs as well. So that's kind of some of the headwinds that are faced. But at the same time, you know the company is, uh, you know, forward-thinking some of the investments that they make, uh, and that's. Going to be tied a little bit too to the next company that we talk about, which is Target. And the idea here overall is that 2016 is just not a good year for for the company. Um, their sales decreased about six percent, and you know going forward, they're expecting declining comps. And if you look at the earnings call, uh, the transcript from the management team, you'll see that the various executives who speak, including the CEO, they spend a lot of time. Uh, they spend far less time talking about the specific numbers for the year than you would usually expect. A lot more time ta- talking about how they're going to be seeing a lot of weakness, a lot of pressure on their margins and on their operating numbers. But how this is, you know, a long-term, forward-thinking look because they need to invest to this seismic change they talk about in the retail environment. So here's. Uh, so with this next two companies that we talk about, uh, we want to do a bit of a sniff test, or uh, I think Asit, the way you put it, was fact or fluff. Uh, can you tell us, kind of set us up a little bit in terms of the quote you wanted to look at, and also the main question uh, that we're kind of looking at for the listeners and investors? For Target, um, we look at fact or fluffed. They are in a tight business situation. Almost every brick-and-mortar retailer has felt the impact of Amazon.com over the last year. And uh, Vince, when you and I had our year-end special, we talked about this at the very end of the show. We were looking at our predicted trends for 2016, and we actually talked about the pressure that Amazon was going to put on companies like Kohl's and Target uh, and all of their siblings. So this has come to pass. This conference call that you mentioned uh, where uh, Target had to own up to that 6% uh, decline in sales was a really interesting call, as you mentioned, because management essentially said, hey, we're going to change our financial model. We're going to adjust to the future by 
taking a hit on our earnings. We're going to invest in our supply chain to move items quicker to our stores. We'll engage in a little bit of delivery of furniture. We will introduce more private uh, brands. And I know when you and I were talking before the show, there is a <laughs> private brand called Cat and Jack. Did I get that right? Cat and Jack, which grew to be a billion dollar brand uh, almost overnight within a year. Yep. Now, if you think about a billion dollars, it sounds like a lot of money, but target sales last year were $69.5 billion. It's going to need a lot of this, this type of uh, onion spring sprouting out of the ground uh, <laughs> to make an impact on their profit and loss statement. So to give you uh, the uh, fluff or fact quote, this is from their CEO, um, and uh, this is Kathy Smith. She said on the call, on the EBIT line, so earnings before interest and taxes, on the earnings line, this year we are planning to generate about $1 billion less than last year. This reduction reflects investments in enhanced store service, the continued shift into digital, support to develop, launch, and market new exclusive brands, gross margin investment to ensure we are competitively priced, and additional um, investments in existing stores. Okay, so this idea of fact or fluff, I'm going to take the first stab at this, and I'm going to say this is fluff, and here's, <laughs> here's my reason. One of the things that was repeated on that call was that Target is going to take gross margin investment. What that means the company is going to start competitively pricing so it doesn't lose more business. And to me, that's always a little bit of a danger signal. I do acknowledge all these other initiatives that we've mentioned, including uh, more penetration into digital channels. I think last year, Target sold about 14% more in digital goods than it had in the prior two years. However, a short-term uh, taking, what we call taking of, of price where you lower your prices to compete, that short-term gambit by the company often becomes a long-term expectation on the part of the customer. And this is my concern with Target. doesn't solve their fundamental problem of how do you compete with the likes of Amazon.com. What do you think, Vince? Fact or fluff? I, I'm torn um, in that I agree that you know, ultimately, you know, with the results that were presented and the the way the stock traded afterwards, uh, a big decline. The stock, uh, I will add, is down something like thirty percent so far in twenty seventeen. It might be slightly off, but you know, they are they're definitely struggling and they're definitely looking for ways to reinvigorate their business. And you know, investors in this company have kind of been on a roller coaster ride the past few years. You think about, I think it was twenty fourteen when they exited their Canadian business and took a huge loss. On that, 2015 things seemed to stabilize, and now you're in 2016, six percent decline in sales, and now the 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 outlook is for ongoing uh, declines in their comparable sales. So that that volatility, that that shift, and I can commend management to an extent for the fact that they're trying to take this longer term outlook, they make these longer term investments in their business, and basically trying to tell uh, these Wall Street analysts on the call that hey, listen, we Need a little bit of time for these investments and for these initiatives to to pay off to see that return on investment. But all in all, I I, I think I, with a more critical eye, will have to agree with you. More fluff, but presenting 
more of the presenting a more bullish view of this or a more positive view of this. You know, they addressed certain things that resonated with me personally. Um, the fact that now uh, here's another quote from that call. They say, "Put a guest in the store. They are looking for inspiration. They enjoy discovery. They enjoy shopping, but very often visit." A visit to Target.com, it's far more transactional. Why not one item at a time? Log on, check out, as fast as possible, friction-free. And I think that reflects a lot of the challenges that these brick-and-mortar operations face, which is declining customer traffic. And you know that's affected uh, the other industry we've talked about today, which is restaurants too, especially chain restaurants. Uh, you know, you see less traffic at malls, at shopping centers, and that's hurt a lot of these uh, the restaurants that are located near them as well. But they're ultimately the the, the expression friction-free, I guess, speaks to a lot of people. I think. Uh, younger consumers, especially, who want to be efficient with their time, and technology overall has generally made shopping this very informed, competitive process where you can price check, you can compare at any time, any place, and then press a button for a very fast, often free delivery to your doorstep. So, ultimately, you know the company is trying to think about what is going to get their shoppers out the door and into stores. They mentioned the importance of things like experiences and how that can be addressed. I think in two ways, you can either have a really wide breadth of offerings, like a Costco model, or the fact that Walmart, for example, has expanded into groceries, or you have a convenience model where you know even Amazon, which is the company that's putting a lot of pressure on uh, you know Target, for example, where they're opening locations for their pickup concepts, and now Target is. Uh, is uh, pushing with some of their smaller store concepts. I think they have 30 of them in operation now. They've talked about doubling that base with another 30 stores this year, 40 more in 2018. And you know some of the the things that they've learned from this test location. I think it was in LA. Uh, they really want to expand the aesthetics of the stores, update them, uh, make them basically more an of attraction, more of an attraction, more of a place that people want to go to get people, you know, to boost that. That traffic. So, on the more positive side, I see, th- I hear things like that. I think that is the right move. But again, uh, some of the 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 I guess finer details when it comes down to how they are going to try and and step up the business, and especially what you mentioned that uh, the investments in the gross margin. What that means is basically you're going to be discounting and getting into a trying to get into a price war essentially with other bigger retailers like Walmart and that's really not a place I think Target ultimately wants to be. Uh, any last thoughts for Target before we move on? Briefly, I, I like the uh, going towards fact um, in this comparison. A great case that you've laid out, Vince. And one thing that that you said I, I will grant is a method for Target to turn this more into fact than fluff, and that is that smaller store format. When it comes down to it, this future for brick-and-mortar retailers is about smaller spaces, so less fixed cost per square foot. When you have uh, anchor stores and these very large 20, 30,000, 40,000 square feet stores, you're competing against Amazon's and Walmart's actually fixed cost, which are now in warehouses. That's where they're investing their dollars in technology, warehouses, and distribution. So by experimenting with these uh, smaller stores, which are more experiential, um, I think Target may have a way to turn some of this fluff into fact. I think it's a great point that you make. And I also do think that their brand resonates more than other brands. I think they've got an edge over Walmart. And it is a brand that customers if you give them something to come into the store for, uh, they'll return. Uh, so there are some positives here. Still say fluff, 
but there's at least a, a narrow uh, path to getting back to fact for Target. We'll see what 2017 brings. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a company that both obviously investors and the consumers are kind of rooting for. They want to have that reason to shop with Target. And it's just a matter of the company executing, uh, regardless of what strategies they may be with, uh, you know, their online operations or smaller store formats. But we will see. Uh, so before we finish out here uh, for our next company, and uh, this is a beverage company, Dr Pepper Snapple. I think it's neglected on the show a little bit. We usually talk about the big guys with Coca Cola and Pepsi, um, but uh, you know, the Dr Pepper Snapple is in a similar situation, I think, as the bigger as its bigger rivals in that it is overall dealing with this ongoing decline in uh, carbonated soda. Consumption, and despite that, you know the company has done quite well for its investors. Um, but let's get right into it uh, in terms of the factor fluff quote and uh, you know the dynamic there. What did you want to look at, Asit? Dr. Pepper Snapple uh, last year grew two and a half percent, and the year before they grew two and a half percent. Yet the stock has returned ninety-five. Uh, percent over the trailing last three years. That's versus uh, about 50% for PepsiCo and just 20% for Coca-Cola. So you're right, we talk about the big guys, sometimes to the neglect of this interesting company. Mm -hmm. Investors have been willing to pony up for Dr. Pepper Snapple because it's got a diversified portfolio. It has uh, brands like Peña Fiel, so I apologize to our listeners who speak Spanish, but that's the number one carbonated brand in Mexico. Uh, it has Snapple, it has Mott's Juices to supplement Dr. Pepper and some of these other sparkling uh, brands, sodas that we're more familiar with. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, how do you get over this 2.5% growth hump? Well, recently, uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple spent $1.7 billion to purchase Buy Brands, which is an enhanced water product uh, which features fresh fruit flavors and uh, is one of these holistic, sustainable brands that millennials gravitate towards. And this was sort of Dr. Pepper Snapple answers their answer to Coca-Cola and Pepsi's recent acquisitions to broaden out their portfolios. Here's the quote, uh, and this is from, again, another CFO. This is CFO Martin Allen, who said on the company's most recent uh, quarterly conference call, coming off our solid 2016 performance, we entered 2017 with a lot of momentum, and we expect another solid year of business performance. We're expecting net sales growth before currency translation of about 5.5%, with 3% of this growth coming from our acquisition of buy. Now, remember I said that the company has grown revenues by 2.5% the last two years. So essentially, the whole rest of the business is gonna remain flat this year, and they have the buy acquisition effect uh, that will give them the rest of the growth. Mm -hmm. My question is, uh, next year, does that just become something that's lapped and the company, again, is looking for growth? Uh, you have to know that Dr. Pepper Snapple originally was the distributor for Buy Brands, so they're only acquiring the revenue they didn't already have. I'm going to lean uh, on this side to fact, because I think this is uh, a big acquisition for Dr. Pepper versus its $9 billion balance sheet. And I think it's an aggressive move into a category where it hasn't had a lot of presence. I'm a little skeptical uh, on how it's going to grow this com uh, new company organically after the first year. But I, I say all in all, this is this is a fact. You can sort of bank on this quote. It's not a bad acquisition. Yep. What about you, Vince? 
Yeah, I I, I generally feel uh, similar in that uh, I think uh, in this industry, especially when you have the traditional carbonated product, soda product, uh, as that demand declines. You know, a lot of these newer categories are claim, are claim the growth, and you know the one that's really really popular now is some of these holistic waters, these uh, the the flavored waters that have kind of uh, swept a lot of interest and popularity in the past few years. And if ultimately, a lot of the bigger players will turn to these younger brands, these upstart companies, and acquire them and leverage ultimately their reach or their resources and marketing really to grow them very quickly. Uh, I think Dr. Pepper Snapple has that interesting position uh, in that it makes its distribution capabilities available to these allied partners. So, Buy was one of the, uh, these allied partners, and I think the company gets a pulse on the industry in this way. Um, but on the flip side, uh, and you, know, you had a great article on this asset, was the idea that the company isn't isn't always able to take advantage of some of these allied partnerships that it has because uh, sometimes the really Popular and ultimately successful brands get acquired by their bigger rivals like Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Some of the names that come to mind that have gone on to become massive successes include Rockstar, Monster, and Vitamin Water. And I think overall, though, you know, buys just an example. It's kind of like a first step that this company can take in terms of the type of opportunities it has with some of these partners uh, and how it seizes them ultimately. But a lot of the you know a lot of interest or a lot of the the opportunity I think also lies in the fact that solid eighty percent I think ninety percent of the company's business remains very U.S. focused. So I think a lot of investors are kind of curious to see uh, you know how the company might expand its reach abroad as well. And you know Mexico for example was a huge major uh, was a significant growth driver in the past year, and that is just one example in terms of market. Uh, that lie ahead that you know the company could push to uh, in that terms of that. Uh, that global reach, that direction, but yeah, leaning on the more on the flag side. But in terms, I think uh, something to definitely keep in mind is the fact that the company was already, as you mentioned, handling the distribution for buy. So the the I guess the uptick there is it's a limited upside. Yeah, my last brief thoughts on this: uh, if you're an investor in DPS, Dr Pepper Snapple, you still have to watch those soft drinks uh, like uh, PepsiCo and Coca Cola. Uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple is investing in marketing to prop up those sales, so it's going to have a tie-up with the uh, probably going to be a blockbuster Wonder Woman movie this summer, uh, Dr. Pepper, and then 7up is going to have a $2 billion impression campaign across social media, digital, uh, TV. So it's also having to plow resources into marketing to prop up those brands while it finds ways to innovate both internally and through these acquisitions that we talk about. But if you've been holding Dr. Pepper Snapple, you know that uh, Steady As She Goes has rewarded investors. And I see that the company uh, should continue to perform very well, at least relative to its the two peers that we've mentioned, those huge beverage companies. Uh, again, like the last, we'll see what 2017 brings. Yep. And uh, you know, one last point I'd like to make for this company is the fact that you know, as the overall uh, you know car- carbonated soda category shrinks, uh, I think Dr. Pepper Snapple's done a good job, you know, grabbing a little bit of share, growing its share in terms of the brands under its umbrella uh, within that admittedly shrinking space. You know, it's not going to go to zero. Uh, you know, there, I think there'll always be soda or people drinking soda in this market, and you know, 
also that has seen growth in other markets as well. So again, there's, uh, you know, what can the company do ultimately? It's gonna uh, expand its reach. But um, you know, I will, I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Asit, very much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Uh, fools, you can reach out to us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus or send any questions to industryfocus at fool.com. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and fool on. Thank you.